these systems always break down. And the lesson is be prepared. And when you think about 2009, whether in Britain or the, the Europe or the United States, people were totally unprepared for what happened. You know, did you have adequate deposit insurance? Did you have, were you playing war games between the central bank and the treasury about who, do, who does what when? You know, all of this kind of stuff just in many countries was not there. Do you have adequate debt resolution procedures? I mean, all sorts of studies, the OECD, the BIS, the G30, you know, we don't have adequate procedures for resolving debt problems, either at the corporate level or the household level or the sovereign level. So be prepared, we're not. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a really great guest. Today, we have the economist William White joining us. Uh, Bill has worked as an economist, a policy advisor, uh, and a policymaker in a career spanning multiple decades. He's probably best known for from his time at the Bank for International Settlements in the 1990s and the 2000s, where he was head of the Monetary and Economics Department and oversaw the publication of the widely read and prestigious BIS annual report. Bill, it's a great pleasure to have you join us today from Toronto. How is all on your side? Oh, I'm just fine, actually. It's a pleasure to be here, Alan. Well, as I say, Bill, you've had an, um, an extraordinary career in, in economic circles spanning multiple decades. If you could, um, would you please give us a, a brief um, introduction to your career and, and, and the highlights um, before we delve into uh, the conversation? Well, I guess the um, I come from a very small town in northern Ontario, uh, only 10,000 people. So uh, the defining moment was when I decided that I had to leave town to um, really do stuff that was of interest to me. So um, I got a scholarship and I went to the University of Windsor in Canada. Then I got another scholarship and moved to um, Britain. I, I did a PhD at the University of Manchester. And then I had uh, three years at the Bank of England, uh, went back to Canada, 22 years with them, 
then went to the Bank for International Settlements, as you've noted, in, in uh, Basel. And I was 14 years there. And then I had 10 years at the OECD. Uh, so I've effectively, I've retired three times, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't stick. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm continuing to be very active uh, in the econ economic scene. Yeah, I was going to say, by the, by, by the looks of it, you continue to be pretty active in terms of writing and speaking. So um, clearly, you, you haven't retired yet. Um, Bill, you probably came to prominence with me um, probably about 10 years ago um, when you wrote a paper about ultra-easy monetary policy and the law of unintended consequences. And it was all about... Um, well, exactly that, that, that everybody in the economic world was focused on QE and the potential benefit that it may bring. But but this paper looked at maybe some of the unforeseen potential consequences that may arise uh, from, from that type of um, policy. Can you give us a bit of a sense on what was your thinking? What prompted you to write that paper? And I guess looking back now a decade on, do you feel a lot of that played out or it played out to, to an extent, uh, particularly when you look at things like we're seeing now in, in the gilts market in the UK and, and very notable dislocations as some of these low rates are being unwound. Yeah, well, I, I guess um, the reason why I wrote the paper, I think it was around 2012 or 13, something like that, was that um, what, what I was observing was that the central banks were, were basically conducting the same monetary policy after the crisis um, that they had been conducting before. And the worries that the BIS had expressed, and I personally had expressed prior to the crisis, was that um, monetary policy was too easy and that it was creating all sorts of problems in addition to the potential for raising inflation. And um, I, I guess um, I don't actually use these words in the paper, but I've subsequently said that the, the monetary policy that was followed before the crisis and indeed for a decade after the crisis was one, unnecessary, uh, two, um, ineffective, and three, dangerous. And um, I tried in the paper to sort of justify really all three of those things. Um, certainly before the crisis, one of the things that worried me and worried my colleagues was that uh, the central banks were leaning against a level of inflation that they felt was too low. And when you sort of think about it, it was sort of odd the way that that had morphed from the earlier concerns, which was inflation was too high, you had to get it down. And then all of a sudden, it was a very, the, the, the starting point was it was different. And they pulled out all the, all the, the big guns in order to try to offset deflation uh, because they thought that it was dangerous. And one of the points that uh, we made in the paper was that, uh, or I made in my paper, was that um, such research as I had seen indicated that, generally speaking, uh, deflation was not dangerous. Uh, deflation was generally, historically, a byproduct of positive productivity increases. And the, the prices wanted to go down. And that by trying, and that was the natural thing to happen, was that the prices should go down. But the authorities uh, basically said uh, they didn't want that to happen. And so they leaned against it with this ultra easy monetary policy. 
And then I got into the second and third aspects of it was one, it would be ineffective because in the fullness of time, as you start using monetary policy over and over again to stimulate the economy, the way you do it is by inducing people to take on still more debts. And in the fullness of time, that debt itself becomes an impediment to more spending. And so the, the thrust of monetary policy becomes more and more ineffective. But the third thing, and I think this went really to the heart of the paper, the unintended consequences, was that <clears throat> we felt prior to the crisis that the, the policies that were being followed were, were positively dangerous because of these unintended consequences. Um, one of them, I guess it's just another way of looking at the debt, debt problem, is that as the debt sort of accumulates over and over, you know, the debt levels get higher and higher, as indeed they were as a ratio of GDP, um, that the, the system becomes inherently less stable. You know, so you can think about corporations that have got very high debt levels. So in all states of nature, in, in good times, the corporations, let's say, that are heavily indebted uh, have got good revenues. But the debt service charge, because the interest rates will go up, will expose them. And if you have bad times where the revenues are not coming in, they're equally exposed. So debt is too high debt levels is not a not a good idea. But then you go on. I mean, you can, you can go on and on about the other threats to financial stability, the misallocation of resources. Um, and generally speaking, things that um, in the end will prove to be very dangerous and culminate in crisis, which indeed they did in 2000 and 2008 and 2009. And my worry later on as I wrote the paper was that still more of the same of what had produced a crisis was likely to produce an even greater crisis. And that was really the refrain that I think I was repeating over and over again uh, from 2013 on that uh, we, we could be heading up to a situation that would be even worse than 2008. And I guess the jury's still out on that, but it's not, it is certainly not implausible. Well, we obviously we haven't had that yet, but it's, we've had, I guess, since then we, you know, I guess you had the taper tantrum, you had um, the, the, the challenges in the US repo and treasury markets in 2018 and then 2020. And, you know, obviously we had dislocations related to COVID and the Fed had to step in again with even more aggressive policies. But we've had a tightening cycle this time. And so far, it's been orderly, except for we've started to see cracks, as I mentioned, say, with, with respect to, to the guilt market. Um, I guess, as you say, it's an open question. It, it, it could still still arise. Um, you, you know, when you look back, I bet the point about inflation, uh, and a lot of people said QE would lead to inflation, and, and it didn't. But now we've had inflation now. But again, it's still... I suppose with all of these things, it's it's very hard to disentangle the different effects. Do you think that that that, that QE prolonged period was a, a contributory factor, or was it more the supply side uh, challenges we've had recently, or more the fiscal stimulus we had in the last couple of years that 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 has driven the inflation rise? I, I think I think the central banks played a the question like, what's what's caused the rebound in inflation. Um, I I think. It is very complicated. There are elements on the demand side, on the supply side. Um, but 
as Milton Friedman once famously said, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Well, in the longer run, that's that's true. And in that sort of sense that the central banks are ultimately responsible for inflation, I would say they bear a significant amount of the the blame for this. Um, you just have to look at what they did, which was extraordinary, even by the standards of 2008. Um, you, you look at the implications, for example, for, for money supply, for M3, uh, you know, where, where you were running in sort of growth rates, I think in the U.S. of... Um, what, between end of 2019 and May of 2022, uh, M3 in the U.S. grew 42%. It grew 22% in the U.K., 21% in the Eurozone. You know, you, you look at numbers like that, and you, you really have to, to sense that somehow it, this was too much of a good thing. And I, I, I worry that, um, you know, that what they have been doing um, is is actually it could well lead to inflation um, getting out of control. I think there's little doubt that when I look at central banks' behavior over the course of the last twenty or thirty years, to me it seems what they have fundamentally misunderstood is the importance of supply side shocks. And I guess I would contend, and I think I do it in that paper that you referred to, but certainly in many others. I would contend, and the BIS has long contended, that the deflationary pressures that we face really since the turn of the millennium uh, owe as much to positive supply side factors as anything else. So you had sort of China and India and Eastern Europe all coming back into the global trading system, essentially sort of adding, you know, billions of new workers to the sort of the, 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 the tradable part of the global economy. And then you have the de demographics in the Western countries, which are very favorable, the baby boomers coming through, et cetera. And these positive supply side shocks were basically trying to drive prices down. And failing to see that, as I said earlier on, the central banks leaned against it because they felt it was dangerous, and I thought it was not. They leaned against it, and they created many of these problems that we currently have. Well, they've made the same kind of mistakes in the course of the pandemic, like in the first instance, suggesting that, um, you know, that the supply side effects would be less than the demand side effects, the negative effects, so that we needn't worry about inflation. And of course, the supply side effects have proved to be much more, uh, much larger, longer lasting than they'd expected. Uh, the, the decision, at least the assertion in the United States and I think elsewhere, that the, the supply shocks would be transitory and that you needn't worry about them. And I think it really has allowed a momentum to build up on the sort of wage price side that is now going to be harder to resist than, than previously. And I worry, too, that the central banks are not sort of underestimating both the diversity and the magnitude of the supply side shocks uh, still to come. Um, and I, I mean, the, I could give you a, a list here of six or seven different things that one sort of wants to, wants to worry about, um, or I think you should worry about. 
the pre-pandemic resource misallocations. You know, I talked about that earlier on as one of the unwanted side effects that you actually have negative effects on uh, on your supply potential. Um, that is still going to be playing out uh, as we go forward. Uh, you know, if the tough times come and the bankruptcies rise, uh, then we'll start to see the the implications of those pre-pandemic resource misallocations. Uh, I think that um, that there, there are forces there that will cause prices to go up. We've got all the sort of the post-pandemic hysteresis stuff that's still playing out. You know, and you think about China and the zero COVID policy and are there reliable supply chains? And as long as it continues, the answer is there aren't. Uh, you're looking at things like long COVID, you know, which has reduced the part rate in both the U.S. and the U.K. as far as I know. Um, we've got population aging. You know, Charles Goodhart and uh, his colleague Pradhan written a whole book about that, that uh, the demographics was pushing prices down. And now the change in demographics, aging, and a lower participation rate is pushing everything in the opposite direction. Uh, we've got climate change. And whether you look at adaptation or mitigation, this is going to be very costly and push prices up certainly is going to um, cause big sort of resource problems in the sense of demand might be greater than a reduced supply. Um, commodity prices, I mean, I know people say the super cycle is behind us, but we're, you know, we're moving into a world now where we're moving out of fossil fuels into a new era that's going to be characterized by heavy dependence on metals. You know, you start thinking about all of the stuff that needs to be done to green, electrify the economy. You know, copper's already <laughs> copper inventories are already sort of very, very low. We've got a massive increase in demand coming down the road. Um, and then lastly, this deglobalization business. You know, um, the, the, the impact of the shock from Russia is a very, very, you know, Russia's little compared to China and is not integrated into the global supply chains the way that China is. And when we see some of the inflation, some of the problems arising from the Russian, uh, as it were, the deglobalization caused by the Russian fiasco, uh, and then imagine that in spades with China. So I think there's a lot of these things coming down the road that the central bank should be more cognizant of and more worried about. Um, but failing to see the supply side stuff, is, this has just been a, a recurrent problem for decades. Yeah. I mean, going back, you, you took, touched on, you know, that policy, easy policy, I guess, before the crisis. And as you say, a lot of that was driven by, well, inflation targeting and concerns about deflation. And I think it was... You know, Bernanke, who was obviously a student of the, the Great Depression, and he wrote a paper or he gave a speech, I remember, in the early 2000s, maybe around 2002 or 2003, about, you know, policies, what, how they could address it, if it, as in deflation, happened in the, in the US. And so that was definitely a big focus. But so, and, and from your perspective, the problem was maybe misdiagnosed in the sense that you know, deflation driven by a positive supply shock shouldn't have been uh, problematic. Why do you think they got that wrong or were overly sensitive 
to deflation? Was that, you know, the experience of the Great Depression or, or where did that come from? Yeah, I think, honestly, the, the intellectual leadership uh, shown by the U.S. and, of course, the elite universities has left a pretty strong impression on everybody. It, you know, so the, sort of what the Americans were thinking uh, tended to sort of guide everybody else's thinking. And I think the definitive experience, historical experience in the U.S. was the Great Depression. And so, you know, what's that old line about for a guy with a hammer you know, everything looks like a nail? So th- th- they, they saw that as the problem. The Germans, of course, their defining historical moment was the hyperinflation. So they, they tended to have a very different view about what the what the underlying problem was. But I think the American view has, has become the sort of the more dominant one. And as I said earlier on, um, there, there have been studies, not least of which at the BIS, but there was a, a paper, Atkinson and Keogh, I think, in the American Economic Review a few years ago, that basically indicated that the Great Depression in the U.S. was was unique. That, that it was the, the only time when there was a significant reduction in real output that was associated with deflation. That most historical periods of deflation have been driven by positive productivity growth. You know, so the prices were going down. And there's quite a literature on all of this too, uh, well summarized by a, a Hobart paper uh, by George Selgan from the Cato Institute, which I think was called Less Than Zero. And, and George goes back and looks at all of that literature. And when you, you sort of think about it, you've got, you know, productivity is going up, so real wages have to go up. And then, in a sense, you have a choice. Do the real wages go up because W, go, you know, real wages are W over P? Do real wages go up because W goes up? Or do real wages go up because P goes down? And there was a big discussion of that that was just totally forgotten. And... Um, even worse, in a sense, the, the, the idea that it's easy enough to understand after the experience of the inflation of the 1970s and hyperinflations everywhere else why, why inflation is bad beyond a certain point. But the arguments for deflation being bad are, are much less strong. And, um, and I, do think, I do think that getting drawn into that that was that was a, a a fundamental mistake, but it goes back again to, as it were, the credibility of different people and the Americans, I guess, with you know having the big universities and the big you know the big economists basically held the intellectual high ground and they brought everybody else along with them, wrongly. Yeah. The second aspect of, of that that you touched on, it was, you know, the whole point about inflation targeting. And obviously, you know, that was seen as a great success of central banking over the last maybe three to four decades that, um, you know, you had a move towards central bank independence and inflation targeting. And, you know, central bankers would probably say that contributed to the fall of inf- in inflation and long term bond yields, etc., but we seem to go from, uh, you know, a desire for price stability to a, a situation of central banks targeting a specific rate of inflation and being very keen to raise inflation and actively stimulate the economy to try and raise inflation to hit the target. I mean, again, do you think that was the wrong approach? Was was there a, a theoretical 
um, misconception there, or, or, or what, how did that? How do we go from the desire to pr- for price stability to this targeting a very specific inflation rate? Um, I don't know. I, I've I've often uh, used the expression it morphed into what it did. You know, it's sort of in the beginning, it was sort of, it was price stability um, is necessary to becoming price stability is sufficient uh, to ensure macroeconomic stability. And therefore, if you've got price stability, you can, in a certain sense, get away with whatever kind of policies, stimulative policies, because... um, Everything's going to be okay. But as I pointed out in a paper, I think I wrote in 2005 called Is Price Stability Enough? Um, when you look at history, okay, there was, no, there was no inflation in Japan prior to the Japanese crisis. Okay? There was no inflation in Southeast Asia before the Asian crisis. There was no inflation in the United States before the Great Depression. So how how this idea that really bad things can't happen if you've got price stability, how that idea came to be so well-established sort of beats me. This is in, this is in the realm of psychology. This is not the realm of economics. This is the realm of psychology. And the, the honest truth is that um, in many different realms, people believe stuff that just simply isn't true. And then it just takes a really big shock to unstick that set of beliefs. This is Th- Thomas Kuhn in the, the, the Structure of Scientific uh, Revolutions. It's, he speaks about this in the realm of science. Uh, sometimes paraphrased wrongly, apparently, uh, as science advances funeral by funeral. And I mean... You know, taking that point a bit further, and you touched on the paper around 2005, and it was around that time, maybe a little bit earlier, I think, when you kind of famously, I think, confronted Alan Greenspan at at, at Jackson Hole with that kind of perspective that the Fed was being overly easy with policy and not being sufficiently cognizant, I guess, of the risk of excessive credit growth, etc., and obviously Greenspan was somebody who was always very attuned to the financial markets and the financial cycle, but still obviously, you know, famously seemed to be unwilling to, you know, deal with the irrational exuberance, as he called it himself. I mean, do you think it was the fact that, you know, a few influ- influential people like Greenspan held that belief that is that we are suggesting that influenced a wide array of people in the industry and, and that just became the, the, the consensus? Certainly, that was certainly that was part of it, and as I say, the the sort of the Americans holding the kind of intellectual high ground, and um, I think the fact that Alan Greenspan uh, basically felt that the policy that we were recommending, which was leaning as we call it, leaning against the wind of excessive credit growth, uh, the fact that he felt that this was probably not desirable, and secondly. Uh, couldn't be done effectively. I think at Jackson Hole, he, he, he said he didn't know of any example of anybody ever leaning against a credit bubble where they'd done so successfully, that you just clean up afterwards. And our view was that, uh, one, it was possible uh, to lean against the credit bubble and that 
Conversely, cleaning up afterwards would not be as easy as Alan Greenspan anticipated it would be. And I guess that I would have thought that after the crash of 2000, you know, after the crisis of 2009, 2010, and the magnitude and the duration of the costs of that crisis would have led people to conclude that their previous beliefs were false, uh, but they didn't. And more broadly, um, when I sort of think more broadly of the kind of models that are used in most central banks to predict the future, um, that those those models, um, in fact, are are um, not very useful. Um, that they um, they're premised on the future being like the past, and uh, unfortunately, in the real world. Uh, that's often not the case. Hmm. So, I mean, from your perspective, you know, if you go back to that period, 2003, say to 2007, obviously we were in the midst of a Fed tightening cycle, but it was very gradual and very well telegraphed. It was, you know, 25 basis points at every meeting. It, I think it, or at least it felt like that, uh, you know, so would it be, I mean, it, it, would it be more like what we're seeing now in terms of 75 bips rate rises? Is that what would have leaning against it looked like or, or, or what would it have been? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the, the, the Fed sort of le leading up to the crisis of 2008 that uh, everybody should have been tighter, but probably tighter earlier than most people would have would have thought of as being possible or desirable. Um, there, there is, again, a kind of literature on, you know, tightening. And, um, you know, some people would contend that if you, if, if you tighten late in the cycle, the credit cycle, actually what you do is you precipitate the bust that you're actually trying to avoid. And then you get sort of, you know, it affects your reputation, et cetera, et cetera. The real secret is to start leaning early enough to to be able to sort of reduce the magnitude of the upspring of the of the upswing because the historical evidence seems to indicate that the downside of a boom bust is very much related to the amplitude the, the downside of the bust is very much related to the amplitude of the boom and i guess what we were also saying at the bis was that uh, you should be using some combination of not just macro tightening but macro prudential tightening and uh, of course, that got no um, uh, no um, what's the word um, uh, support at all. Uh, and uh, in fact, I mean, in the post-crisis period, uh, as they were using monetary policy to try to deal with the slump, uh, and it was having all of these undesirable side effects, the the, the basic idea was that you should use macro prudential uh, to to tighten in order to support easy money, whereas our original suggestion was that both of them should be used to try to reduce the amplitude of the, of the boom. So um, going, going back to the period then after the crisis, uh, you know, I would take your point on the unintended consequences. I guess the flip side is from a political perspective, you, you know, it, it, there was that political desire 
again, uh, you know, driven by a, a, an economic perspective, uh, you know, to, for austerity and, and, and tighter fiscal policy, which obviously left, you know, monetary policy as the kind of the only game in town and as it was caused. So from a central banker's perspective, I mean, presumably you had sympathy for the central bankers to be kind of painted into that, you know, backed into a corner, essentially. No? Absolutely. And, and in my own mind, I've never really resolved the extent to which they did what they did really from 2009 through to, through the pandemic. They did what they did because they thought it would be effective and was the most desirable policy to follow. And there I think they were wrong. Or whether they were saying, um, we're the only game in town. You know, the fiscal is gonna, fiscal's moving in the opposite direction. Regulatory policy is tightening. Um, sort of in the words of, um, you know, um, uh, Yes, Prime Minister, you know, with Sir Humphreys, says, says to the Prime Minister at a certain point, Minister, Prime Minister, something must be done. And absolutely something must be done. And the central banks found themselves in a position where they probably found it pretty hard to avoid doing what they were doing. But what's the balance between the two? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Both of them were probably playing out. Yeah. So bringing that up to the current day, and I guess, you know, thinking about all of that, we're, you know, we're into a point where, again, policy was probably too stimulative and, and the, the easy policy maybe um, addressed too slowly, uh, I guess, would probably be the, the market consensus. But now we're, you know, central bankers are catching up and getting ahead of it. I mean, from your perspective, is that the right policy that we're seeing now or given what you're saying about supply shocks, I mean, do we just have to accept lower growth going forward or what's the best way to calibrate policy in an environment of more constrained aggregate supply? Well, the difference between the, this situation, let's say in the 1970s where you had supply shocks, is that there was more of a tendency in the 1970s for the shocks to be sort of self-equilibrating. So if you're paying more for energy in the U.S., let's say more for oil, you had less money to pay for something else. And so the thing was essentially sort of stagflationary, that your growth would slow at the same time as uh, as prices were going up. And that, you know, so in a certain way, you didn't have to lean against it as much because the system itself was tending to equilibrate at a, at a lower level of inflation and, 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 and growth. But a lot of these, these supply-side shocks that are coming down the road now, when you sort of think about them, they really, ought to, they really ought to invite a lot more investment, not less. So when you start thinking about going to move away from fossil fuels to, to non-fossil fuels, okay, that's going to take a lot of investment, which is going to increase aggregate demand. When you think about the demographics, all of a sudden, companies can't get the workers. So what are they going to do? In part, what they're, what they're going to do is they're going to raise investment in order to replace higher-priced workers with real capital. The same thing with respect to climate change. You know, we're going to need um, to do a lot of things very, very differently. Is that an argument for accepting higher inflation then, do you think? I mean, is that going to be part of the narrative that we hear going forward? I, 
I don't think it should be because an ongoing high inflation of that nature, sort of beyond the period when the supply shocks apply, will really just be a wage price kind of spiral that does nobody any good, you know, and head and heading for a, you know, for a, it's conceivable to head towards a kind of Latin American sort of solution. So no, nobody, I think, would 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 recommend that. But it is interesting. I mean, I was reading a paper just yesterday by Joe Gagnon from the Peterson Institute, and uh, he's talking about raising the inflation target to 4%. And you may remember Olivier Blanchard was also there. He was earlier talking about raising the inflation target. And there's no question that a higher inflation target is part of the way out. And indeed, it's not impossible that, in fact, you know, that the central banks will say that they're going back to 2%, but in reality will pursue polities that are sort of not so tight and might be more consistent with 4%, you know, because they recognize that one way to get out of a debt problem, which is the kind of problem we have, one way is to just inflate it away. And if you could convince the markets that inflation was under control at 2% and it really wasn't, then you really have got a form of financial repression where you've let inflation go up, but you've kept the interest rates down and you've eaten away at the debt overhang in that particular fashion. I, I don't think that's the, the attitude of the central banks. I think it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's... But do, it's, do, do it's, central banks have those conversations? Obviously, you're, you've been in central banking circles for many years. You, you, obviously, you don't read comments like that in the minutes of the FOMC talking about let's get inflation higher to erode the real value of the debt, etc. But but do, do those conversations happen? Is is that something that do you think at the, at no, the high I, level? No, I, 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 I don't think so. I, I think the inflation targeting thing is so deeply embedded um, in the sort of the psychology of central bankers that they, they really wouldn't countenance anything of that nature. So that if they lose control, it's because um, they've made sort of policy errors of whatever whatever sort, rather than sort of well, let's go for it. Uh, now, more likely is that the governments might decide to do that, you know, which would imply, of course, a loss loss of central bank independence and you know, blah blah blah. Um, but when you consider who are the biggest debtors, of course, it's the governments. And who's most likely to gain from a higher level of unexpected inflation? It's the governments. So there's a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff in play here. And the governments, I mean, if you do this intergenerational accounting stuff, you know, you take into account all the all the off balance sheet promises, as well as the contractual obligations of governments. The Cato Institute does this on a fairly regular basis. And the last time I looked in it was about two years ago when they did these calculations. You know, the, 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 there's a huge shortfall in virtually all Western countries uh, between the revenues that can be expected, tax revenues that can be expected under current legislation and the, and the obligations that governments have made, you know, through entitlements and safety nets and all that kind of stuff. And uh, those, those numbers indicate, maybe we're starting to see sort of a bit of that already, that the governments have over the years made commitments that they will not be able to honor 
given current tax levels. So that's why I must say that when I was looking at this mini budget thing, you know, where we're going to cut taxes in an unfunded way, uh, it just struck me as extraordinary because I see the debt problem already as being very difficult to manage. Um, and in addition, all of those supply side shocks that I was talking about that will invite or even necessitate uh, big spending in order to deal with them. You know, just think about climate change in particular. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure on governments. And the idea of cutting taxes just struck me as um, yeah, well, odd. I, totally out of sync with the prevailing economic orthodoxy, I would say. But, I mean, when you're talking about the debt problem, are you, you know, obviously you've got government debt, you've got corporate debt, you've got household debt. Um, and I guess going into the financial crisis, it was household mortgage debt that was, you know, the, 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 at the root cause of that. When you're, when, is it the government debt that you see as the big issue at the moment? And, and is it the current trajectory and then the future growth from, from, the, uh, uh, from the commitments? Is that, is that what you really see as the big problem? Yeah, I, th I think in some Western countries, the household debt has been sort of um, brought down, particularly in the U.S., but in other countries, of course, you know, I think even in the UK, you know, the household debt levels are still quite high. And in places like Canada, Sweden, some of the Nordic countries, they're, they're extremely high and worrisome household debt. Um, more broadly, there's a lot of worry about corporate debt, uh, not just corporate debt, you know, the level of corporate debt, but the quality of corporate debt. So you look at the way in which all of that, that stuff that's been issued at very low rates of interest, you know, since 2008, the corporate debt that's clustered around triple B, I think almost 50% of it now is triple, triple V, something of that nature. Um, and there's increasing worry too about um, overseas debt and both corporate debt, sorry, overseas debt, everything's overseas, right? to somebody else. <laughs> uh, what I really meant was emerging markets, that uh, there's a lot of concern there, both about governments and about uh, private corporate debt. And a lot of the private corporate debt, you know, has been issued in dollars. And the fact that the Fed is now tightening as aggressively as they are, uh, this is creating a lot of difficulties for, for, for people. Uh, as I said earlier on, you know, when you've got big debts and uh, the interest rates go up, then you've got problems with debt service. Uh, but if you've got them not just at higher rates, but in a currency whose value is going up, then you've got the double whammy. And uh, there's, I know the fund and people are increasingly worried about the emerging markets. But the, the corporates, the, the, the government debt, I mean, you know, when I talked about this, this worry about, um, you know, the government, governments have got a big problem in terms of um, the, the debt levels, sort of in many cases at unprecedented levels. And uh, there, there will be a great tendency to turn to the central bank. And of course, one of the problems, another problem associated with what the central banks have done over the course of the last decade or so, and particularly since the, the pandemic, particularly since the pandemic, let's just focus on it particularly since the pandemic, the massive increase in the size of the central bank, banks, uh, at the same time as we've had a massive increase in government debt, the stock of government debt, 
it's not hard to think about it, although the central banks will deny it. Uh, but it's not hard to think about it as being, well, the central banks have actually financed the, that big increase in the government debt. And then it's just a small step further to go to say, well, that's what they did do and that's what they will do. And then it's only a further small step to say, boy, that could be a bit dangerous. I think I better have a higher rate of interest in order to prepare myself for the risks associated with what they're doing. And when you think about what happened in the gilts market, you know, what triggered the whole thing was really that sort of sense of it, that the government had done something that uh, basically was going to make their unfunded liabilities problem more serious. And the market said, I'm out of here. And then as we know, and this goes back again to the earlier talk we had about the unintended consequences, it turns out that over the course of the last number of years, there's been a huge increase in the use of derivatives uh, and increased risk-taking, uh, both increased risk-taking that people understood they were taking and increased risk-taking that they didn't understand that they were taking. But uh, then the second leg of it was when the pensions and the insurance companies had to start unwinding, you know, selling collateral that was already, prices were already going down and they were selling still more of it to get, to get cash. And, um, you know, we saw it in the gilts market, but um, there was an article in the FT yesterday, I think it was the FT, about the, U the European pension funds, okay? Uh, they've, they, they've basically, um, I'm, I can't recall who they sent the letter to, but they're basically making a case for a regular kind of safety net so that pensions and insurance companies in Europe can get cash when they need it against collateral through the central bank. Julian Tett's got an article today in the FT about the US being in the same situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Bank of England did bring in a new liquidity facility, I think, to facilitate that. But um, but as you say, these are all the kind of unintended consequences that, that, that people hadn't anticipated. So, I mean, how do you see that playing out on a multi-year basis? You know, is it that we see higher bond yields over time because of of those liabilities and 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 the increased spending is it um you know we touched on how we might see a tolerance for higher inflation to uh, you know and financial repression is it that we see periodic debt crises or, or you know you're kind of flagging risks but how how can you can you paint a picture of how it might play out on on a multi-year period well let me let me just sort of say something about the the system um, when you think when you think about this sort of expansion of the safety net now to pension funds and insurance companies who should have the right to come directly into the central bank, you you want to start thinking about the long term trends here, and I think those long term trends implied by the system that we've got are essentially unsustainable, and the way that it it works and has worked for decades. You know, is you, you, you start off with the banks and you say, we can have runs on banks. And you say, oh, that's very costly. So we need safety nets. So you get safety nets for the banks. And then you say, oh, safety nets, that's a moral hazard. Okay, so we need regulation to deal with the moral hazard. Well, the regulation just invites evasion, which is what was happening prior to the great financial crisis with the shadow banks and all that stuff. And 
then you you start saying, well, we need you know now it's the the the, the secondary banking system or the shadow banking system that needs support, and they're subject to run. So now we need safety nets for them, and so it continues. And what we saw again, trying to get my crazy say said here, you know, where the 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 Fed first sort of bailed out the sort of the bank holding, you know, first it was the banks and then it was the bank holding companies. And now more recently, it's been the, the, the buyer of last resort. Okay. Some people say the market maker of last resort, really the buyer of last resort. Um, and there's anticipation here with this pension fund, et cetera, et cetera. There's just another step so that in the end you wind up, you wind up with a safety net for everybody and moral hazard for everybody. And so I don't know, I think we should be thinking, so in the same sort of way as I see the sort of the, the regulatory framework as being unsustainable, particularly since the technology now is helping the evasion so, so much, okay? Um, that sort of the, the, both the regulatory system and the monetary system seem to me to be unsustainable over time. And we people should be thinking about much more fundamental changes. Anyway, that aside, where do we go from here? Um, as you may know, I mean, I've been a, I've been a proponent for years of the idea uh, that the central banks have made a kind of fundamental philosophical error that they think that the economic system is comprehensible and um, what's the word manageable. You know, that they understand it and they can control it. And the actual reality is that the economic system, like many, many others in nature and society, is what they call a complex adaptive system. And these systems break down all the time, and they often do so at tipping points, you know. And so um, the, the future is essentially unknowable. And I can tell you a story, indeed, Economists have been telling these stories about why you might expect debt deflation. I can tell you a story about why I expect debt deflation at this moment. And economists have for years and years been telling you stories about how you get very high inflation and hyperinflation. And I can tell you a story along those lines too. Um, going forward, I guess my sense of it is that, um, is that these inflationary shocks will in fact um, drive us into a recession and perhaps even a, a relatively deep recession. What will happen is that um, I said earlier on that deflation is not a dangerous thing. It's only, I, let me qualify this, it's only... When it's driven by no, a positive supply shock. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is a dangerous <laughs> thing when you have, through your own policies, generated a level of debt that is going to be a burden on everybody. Okay, and so it's easy to tell an Irving Fisher kind of story, you know, debt deflation from the 1930s. It's also not hard to tell a story of very aggressive fiscal and monetary policy resistance to that, basically causing expectations of inflation to come totally unstuck. And then you've got a world in which this is there were a very famous article written by uh, Wallace and Sargent back in 1981, I think, which was called Some Unpleasant Monetarist Arithmetic. And basically, the prevailing belief at the time was that if you kept the money supply under control, there'd be no problem. 
And what Sergeant and Wallace pointed out was that if the fiscal thing was not under control, that attempts by the monetary authority to keep the money supply under control would basically explode. You know, that in, in effect, what would happen is the central bank would resist the inflationary coming out of the, fisc, the exploding fiscal deficit. Uh, they would resist, the interest rates would go up, but then the interest rates would then feed back in to the government debt service requirement to magnify that requirement and make the underlying inflationary problem even worse. And in the end, the whole thing explodes. So um, you can tell a story on both fronts and maybe one after the other. Yeah. So you're touching on this whole area of, you know, what people call them fiscal dominance and, you know, how the fiscal authorities can allow policy to be more stimulative and then, you know, um, you know, that could pu pu push up, um, obviously, bond yields and that impacts on the, you know, the central banks, um, uh, you know, uh, how they're, you know, executing their policy. Um, and we kind of saw this, you know, coming in, in in the Bank of England there recently, where they, on the one hand, were planning quantitative tightening, but then they had to intervene to to, to buy bonds again. So, is that that could be part of the uh, part of the scenario, as you say? It, is that going to undermine, or do you think central bank credibility has already been undermined by by this apparent, you know? Um, belief, you know, or, or this perception that the central banks funded a lot of the uh, spending that we saw over the last couple of years? Like, like many sort of ideas, things can stay quite stable. This is characteristic of complex adaptive systems too. Things can stay very stable for a long period of time and then they come unstuck. And um, the Sergeant Wallace story is, is in, in a sense a bit like that, that at a certain point, as the central bank has more and more, sorry, as the government has more and more recourse to the central bank, you know, and the central size of the central bank balance sheet goes up, that at a certain moment, you know, what you might call the, the Wiley Coyote moment, okay, or the Minsky moment, at a certain point, people see the writing on the wall, and then they say, I'm out of here. And I don't think we're, we're there yet, but you can tell that people are getting increasingly worried about this and if central banks have to step in i, I mean um to 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 fund deficits now more more aggressively i suppose this is what we're seeing in japan already and for years people have speculated well what is the end game with the bank of japan you know effectively i don't know what the stats are now but owning most of the bond market if not all of it i mean if you saw that across the main a number of major economies um what does that look like? Uh, you know, is that sustainable or can that go on for many years? Um, the answer again, Alan, is I don't know. I don't know. I mean, one of, one of the points that, um, you know, you'd make is the, the Sergeant Wallace paper, but, you know, this will all end in much higher inflation. Um, but that's a world they were really thinking in terms of one country. And of course, the, the first thing that you do when you become suspicious of your own country's longer term price stability is you short the currency, right? You get a currency crisis. But the question I've asked myself and I've asked others and I have no answer is, what do you do when all of the central banks are doing the same thing? All of the governments and all of the central banks are in the same situation. And then, of course, you'd say, well, then it's gold or cryptocurrencies or whatever. 
But, um, you know, I haven't looked at the gold price recently, but I think it's been going down. So we're not uh, we're not in that kind of territory. Crypto has been going down, too. So, um, you know, the, the, there hasn't been that kind of revelatory moment. But it's not to say that it can't still come. Um, and so I'm I'm with the I'm with the people who, who basically say that, uh, you know, the governments and the central banks you just cannot give up on sensible longer term macroeconomic goals. And that one of the principal mistakes in the mini budget was that it didn't come with the sort of imprimatur and uh, um, a statement that we have to do what we have to do in the short term, but we have a clear and credible plan when this is all over to get back to fiscal responsibility. So um, I'm perfectly prepared to have governments run up deficits and debts in periods of time when they have to, uh, and central banks too, for that matter. But the point of the matter is that it's got to be, if you don't want to run too big risks, it's got to be done in a way that constrains the future, the, the future behavior of those institutions. And that's what we're not seeing enough of. And as I say, I think there's been a growing sort of worry about the link between government deficits and central bank balance sheets. The other, the other penny that is sort of dropping in a lot of places, and again, I, I'm going to plead even more ignorance about this one because it's a purely psychological play, is that many of these central banks now are going to be losing money big time as the interest rates go up. And I've seen estimates that indicate that if you did mark-to-market for the Fed, they'd probably be a trillion dollars underwater at the moment. And their capital is something like 50 billion, which is vastly in excess. And then you sort of say, but listen, the central bank, does it matter? Does that matter? Does it matter? Does it matter? The deeper question that worries me, I know it doesn't matter. It only matters when people say it matters, even though it doesn't matter. So if you've got an institution absolutely at the heart of your fiat money system and it's losing money big time, you know, the question is, what what does that do to people's expectations? It ought to do nothing. (laughs) My worry is it might do something. Anyway, this is all in the the realm of psychology. I mean, this is... Yeah, no, I know. But I suppose touching on on that point, uh, you know, the, the the psychological perspective or the non-quantitative perspective. I mean, you make the point that you know what's wrong with a lot of the macro models is this kind of belief that there's some tendency back towards equilibrium, that there is a, an ability to model all of this stuff in the first place. And obviously, in economic theory, you know, there's there has been this drive for more. Um, quantification, you know, m- more ma- maps, etc. Used in 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 economic um, uh, research, it's almost like economists have been seduced by their own theoretical brilliance and and have kind of haven't kept a, a close eye of uh, close enough eye on economic history and and what's happening in the real world. I mean, how does that get resolved, or or how do policymakers become more? less, I suppose, more pragmatic and less wedded to those models? Well, again, um, it, this is in the realm of psychology. Um, Thomas Kuhn, when he wrote that book, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, talked about how difficult it was even in normal times 
for people to change their views away from the prevailing belief. And then, um, what's his name, um, who wrote Thinking, uh, Daniel Kahneman, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he basically contends that when times are not normal, that it, something happens that's just totally inexplicable given your sort of analytical framework. Far from rejecting the framework, people sink more deeply into it because it's the only thing they've got. And that may be sort of some of what we've been seeing. Um, how, how big a shock will be required to sort of change the way people think about their analytical frameworks? I, I don't know. Um, as I say, with, with some of the widely used models, you know, these so-called uh, DSGE models, um, you know, crises of this sort, of the sort that happened in 2008, couldn't happen. And if something of that magnitude did happen, the system would very quickly go back to equilibrium of full employment and whatever inflation target the central banks wanted. Well, both of those things, the crisis that couldn't happen did happen, and the crisis that should go away didn't go away, and yet still people are writing articles based on the same kind of premise, using the same sort of frameworks. Now, I'm sure that the central banks have always been sort of pragmatic and their, their policies have not been driven by, you know, specific individual specific models. But this, that sort of framework of it'll sort itself out, I think has not sort of really, really gone away. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the mainstream consensus view is still that the easy monetary policies after the crisis was correct. Um, um, Martin Wolf did a, a review of two books, uh, Edward Chancellor's book on the price of time, and Edward Chancellor has been on, on the, the Top Traders Unplugged uh, podcast, and, uh, and it contrasted that with Ben Bernanke's book on uh, 21st century monetary policy. And, you know, Martin Wolf uh, came down very strongly on the side of Ben Bernanke's perspective was correct and uh, Edward Chancellor's was incorrect. And he does give you a little bit of kudos in, in his article about correctly predicting some financial crises along the way, but but by and large doesn't appear to have accepted that that argument of, you know, the, the pearls of, of easy um, money. And I guess, I suppose part of that comes from a well, you know, a well-meaning approach, if you think about it, like um, the whole point about the easy money, uh, even Greenspan in, in kind of the old 405 or 6 period was the belief of being able to keep unemployment low and extend the benefits to, to to more people. We had the same in 2019 with, with Jerome Powell. You know, this was the best labor market in, 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 in generation. Uh, you know, was, so in a sense, it's well-meaning policy, but... Uh, and it, but but it it still it still seems to be the consensus view that uh, you know that it was the right policy. Even Paul Krugman, I've seen re writing recently, arguing that policy was maybe too tight for 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 some of that period. So yeah, it seems like it takes a, a lot to change people's yeah. perspectives yeah, on and that. I have no idea when that when that turning point will come, um, if ever. But um, as I've tried to express, my my concern is that simply more of the same of the kind of policies that we have been following. Uh, seemed, it seems to me that it, it makes the, the objective situation just more and more dangerous.
When when you look at the current situation relative to, to history, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Great Depression. We've talked about, obviously, the financial crisis in, in 08. And, you know, you, you've touched on how we've, we're seeing more concerns from, from the IMF around emerging markets. You know, obviously, that there are potential fault lines out there. But there always are, and often the next crisis comes, you know, from some place that maybe is a little bit, you know, unforeseen. If you if you look back to 07, a lot of people thought the crisis was going to be with the dollar at that point, you know, in this uh, kind of Bret- Bretton Woods two arrangement that was in place. Where do you think the, you know, you know, not just, I mean, in terms of the international monetary system as well, which is something that has been, you know. Re- uh, talked about as as another fault line that you know that 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 with the uh, a potential shift away from the dollar with, with the international or, or greater weaponization of of the dollar i mean there, there's such an array of potential catalysts you know how do you kind of assess all of those diverse trends that are going on well one of the um, again going back to this literature on complex adaptive systems if the system itself is unstable it doesn't matter where the trigger comes from. It, it could be anything. And in a certain sense, you're wasting your time sort of thinking about triggers um, because it's um, almost inherently impossible to predict. Having said that, what am I most worried about? I, I, I suppose it's this whole nexus of sort of leverage that's sort of been built up and it's out there in the shadows and we don't sort of really know what's there. I mean, one of, this is one of the real problems is that we've moved from a, an area where the regulators, you know, banking, banking finance, where the regulators have got a pretty clear idea at least of what's happening. Whereas a lot of this new stuff now, um, I don't think anybody really knows what's out there. And, um, I remember saying to one of my colleagues at the BIS uh, some some years ago, it was on the payments and settlement side, and I said to him, uh, you know, the, the payments and settlement systems really worked very well through 2009 and the the crisis. Okay, I said if I were if I were you, I'd I'd be looking for that area as uh, the the source as the trigger for the next crisis because it always comes from someplace unexpected. You know, and you sort of say it worked last time, so I'm sure it'll be fine this time. Well, it won't. Maybe or maybe not. You know, maybe not. So, I think the the this this what's gone on in the gilts market is. Um, I worry it's a kind of canary in the mine shaft for um, for others. As I said um, earlier on here, you know, the, the the Europeans are already talking about how the ECB's got to do what the Bank of England did and. Uh, people talking about, the, well, the Fed's really going to do it too. And the point is that the pensions, pension funds and insurance companies are not the only people that have been doing some, uh, as it turns out, risky things. In their case, I guess they didn't, you know, it really didn't sink into their consciousness, the whole idea of if rates go up and then margins, margin calls come, blah, blah, blah. But there's a whole lot of other people that have been given the incentive by these very low interest rates and easy availability of credit to do a lot of silly things. And um, I mean, one one part of it is all of the money, for example, that's gone into companies that um, have not been sort of whose business model is not profit today, it's share, market share. So you keep pumping more and more money into these outfits. And in the end, of course, 
if they're all intent on on getting monopoly rents, which they are, uh, obviously they can't all do it, and there's going to be an awful lot of people go to the wall. I also ask myself the question of how can they do this kind of stuff without thinking about the regulators? You know, we're gonna, you know, Uber is going to dominate the world in terms of, uh, you know, uh, taxis. Uh, well, where are the regulators when it comes down to the price gouging? So, and I think there's a lot of a lot of silly things that have been done under the influence of these extremely easy financial conditions. And um, as we tighten, you know, as the, and the inflation forces the tightening, <clears throat> we'll start to see some unwinding. We've mentioned fiscal dominance, but of late, we've heard more talk of financial dominance. And I guess it's this idea that as, as the central banks tighten, that we'll have an accident somewhere along the way, somewhere in the system. Uh, and obviously, the, the, what we saw in the Gilts market was an example of that. You know, yeah, if, ab ab absolutely. And, and, and Janet Yellen, just the other day, apparently, asked the committee of, you know, sort of market makers in the US whether the whether the Treasury or government should be buying more, more short term government securities. Well, you know, this. So it, it absolutely you got the central bank basically saying we're going to do quantitative tightening. And then you've got this other problem that says, no, your balance sheet is not going to get smaller. It's going to get bigger. So it must raise questions in people's minds about uh, where this will all end. If in the end, worries about financial stability mean you have to keep monetary conditions easy enough to be inflationary or not tight enough to be disinflationary in the face of supply side shocks, where does it all end? And this has got to be a kind of question that people are asking themselves. So the, 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 another way to sort of talk about it, I guess, is to say, you know, are you worried about financial dominance or are you worried about fiscal dominance? Well, one way you sort out, this is traditional, right? One way you sort out financial problems is the government pays for them. But that just turns the government, it just turns private sector debt into public sector debt. And then, so you know, so the two of them are the two of them are closely linked, okay? and both of them are um, not good for a for a non-inflationary future. No, no. Um, before we close up, I just wanted to get your perspective on Europe. We haven't talked much about Europe, uh, but I mean, Europe is obviously unique in in the sense of not having a single fiscal entity, but we've seen steps towards kind of mutualization of, of debt in Europe in the last while. Is that the, the trajectory of travel, do you think, going forward? Or do you think the structural issues with the euro are going to reemerge? Is that obviously one of the possible fault lines that we may face in the, in the next few years? Or how do you see the strains in, in, in that we're talking about playing out in the European context? Well, it's certainly, it's certainly changed a lot the, the, the last little while. I mean, the willingness of the, of the Europeans to, uh, to, to countenance uh, much larger fiscal deficits on the part of member states uh, to countenance the issue of, what, seven, $800 billion worth of euro-denominated bonds guaranteed by the center. Okay, this is all, this is all brand new. And in a certain sense is, in a certain sense, is welcome. Because I think in the sort of the, the aftermath of the great financial crisis that the, the degree of austerity demanded on some of the countries was excessive. 
but anyway, the, the that that I think is 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 welcome, but it's it is again. I mean, it it it's back to the moral hazard question. That um, as long as the countries, for example, let's say Italy is a good example, you know, are using the funds available in a sensible way to provide long-term structural stability, um, that's good. But if they're not, then it's not so good. And um, I was sort of pretty unhappy when when uh, Mario Draghi resigned because um, it seemed to me that he was following some pretty sensible policies, you know, that were really focused on the long-term structural reforms that Italy needs to increase growth. But where that's all going to go, I've, you know, there's a political dimension there that I'm not an expert in at, at all. Um, one thought, though, that did occur to me is that we talk about the future of the dollar. And I do remember in 2007, 2008, there were lots of people. I mean, Nouriel Rabini was one of them, basically saying that, you know, the, the, there would be a dollar crisis, you know, and that would precipitate a broader crisis. Well, there wasn't. And in fact, the dollar just got stronger. And when the pandemic hit, uh, it was exactly the same kind of thing. And now it's, you know, it's running at uh, record highs and wreaking, wreaking havoc as it goes. And uh, I, I have an article coming out in the international economy, uh, which really sort of questions whether the, um, the strength of the dollar will continue if we do have another big financial and economic crisis. And um, I won't go into all of the arguments that sort of support that against all of the historical evidence, you know, where it hasn't happened. Um, but um, one, of, one of the things that account for people not being attracted <clears throat> to the euro market or to Chinese bonds uh, in the European cases, because the market is just too fragmented. But it could well be that with these um, current issues of centrally guaranteed bonds, and prospective further ones in order to deal with the sovereign debt of peripheral countries that, you know, you, you might have, if they can deal with all the problems that they've got, you might well have a currency, you might well have a currency that where the market is much bigger, much more liquid and used much more by people in the same way as the dollar market is used today. Who knows, you know, but it's a possibility. Maybe briefly, if you could touch on a few of the points as to why the dollar might might not um, be as, uh, as stable in, in a future crisis, if, if, if you can. Well, I think the, um, the, 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 the central point is that uh, all of the underlying problems that have led people to say that the dollar, um, you know, that the dollar system really ought to be in demise, that all of those problems are still out there and indeed are, are growing, you know? So the um, U.S. balance of payments, you know, the trade deficit getting bigger. The um, I think in a crisis, all of this stuff is a realm of speculation, but, you know, if there was another big crisis, um, the U.S. response might be to be even more stimulative than other people might be. You know, going back to what we said earlier, they're still fixated on the Great Depression. We have to avoid it. Others, perhaps more fixated on hyperinflation. We have to avoid it. 
but uh, they might uh, pull out all the stops on the uh, on the monetary fiscal side, aggravating already growing concerns about fiscal dominance and the size of the debt increases in re- recent years. Um, what if the Americans, you know, up until now, the Americans have used swap lines, the feds, right? Fed has used swap lines to provide dollars to people that are short dollars. And that, in a sense, takes the pressure off. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of safety net for the system as a whole. It makes people think, well, we should stay in dollars because there's a backstop. Well, what if they decide or Congress decides that they're not going to provide dollars to these foreigners? The interesting question about the, the swaps and about um, broadly about the international financial system. You know, there is no guaranteed lender of last resort. The Fed can choose under Congress's over, uh, oversight can choose what to lend and to whom. Well, what if for some reason, all of a sudden, the support is not there? Uh, in the short run, you'd get, uh, obviously, I mean, dollars would be in very, very short supply. Presumably, the dollar would spike even further. The damage caused by it would be even greater. Uh, but in the longer run, there would be a growing tendency for people to say, hmm, and I think, too, the weaponization of the dollar, which has been, you know, done repeatedly. But this this last one with Russia and basically sort of throwing them out of swift. Um, you can imagine, you know, reserve managers in, in particularly in emerging markets that are not sort of good friends of the U.S. and the Fed. Uh, basically saying to themselves, I, over time, I think I better I, I don't want to be in a position where all of my money is subject to, you know, being tied up by somebody else's, somebody else's decisions. And, um, you know, the Chinese have already got this sort of, what's the word, international payment system that they've set up, which is not nowhere as big as SWIFT, still relies on SWIFT, but it's not impossible to imagine them sort of somehow rejigging things so that it doesn't need the SWIFT connection, getting an exp- further expansion, all depends, of course, on what they're going to do with the MMB. But all of these are stories, right, Alan? As, as I said before, in these these complex systems, it's almost all all the action is in the is in the feedback mechanisms, you know. So you you don't ever know until you actually yeah. see it play out what's going to happen. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting because uh, you know a lot of the um, people we talked to on this podcast are involved in. Uh, systematic trading strategies and they're all based on this premise of trend following that you, you know you don't you don't know where the big moves are going to occur but it's the very nature of the system the inherent instability of the system that means that these big moves will happen episodically but they're almost inevitably going to happen because as you say you've got a, a system that's complex adaptive it's uh, driven by people who have to make decisions with behavioral biases and and people who make policies and there's make errors in making those policies so it's uh it ties very much into that whole uh, way of thinking um before we wrap up maybe it'd be great to get some perspective um for people on you know obviously you've been working as an economist you've got great perspective on economic theory on on the global economy you know and that's been built up over many years for people who are coming into the markets now, want to learn more about macroeconomics, want to learn more about 
central bank policy making, all of that stuff. What what would you recommend for them to to do or read or listen to, uh, or what what kind of books or sources have been influential for you over the years? Um, you know, it's funny. I just pulled out. I've got a big file on sort of um, economic theory, and uh, right, <laughs> it's about it's about. <laughs> foot and a half high, and when I took it off my shelf, it almost uh, overwhelmed me. Um, I, I think at the moment, I keep going back to this complex adaptive stuff, that thinking thinking about the world in those terms is, is very helpful. And uh, there's a book that came out about a year ago, I think, published by the OECD under the, the there's a group there called the secretariat responsible for what they call new approaches to economic challenges. And the whole thing was really based on really the underlying aspect of it is it's complex and adaptive. And there's all sorts of lessons that you can learn from that. So the OECD published a whole book with a lot of, you know, real heavy hitters uh, talking about the kind of insights that they had about the financial system and how it operates. And I, I'd recommend that to anybody. I, um, I had a chapter in it myself, which was called uh, Simple Lessons from Macro Policymakers uh, from Embracing Complexity. And um, the irony of it is that you, you, at the conceptual level, you say the economy is complex and adaptive, okay? The irony is that there's some very simple lessons that come out for policymakers from just accepting that. And there are things like... Um, these systems always break down according to a power law. And the, the, the lesson is be prepared. And when you think about 2009, whether in Britain or the, the Europe or the United States, people were totally unprepared for what happened. You know, did you have adequate deposit insurance? Did you have, were you playing war games between the central bank and the treasury about who, do, who does what when? You know, all of this kind of stuff just in many countries was not there. Do you have adequate debt resolution procedures? Uh, we, we, we know that that still hasn't happened. In, in all sorts of studies, the OECD, the BIS, the G30, you know, we don't have adequate procedures for resolving debt problems, either at the corporate level or the household level or the sovereign level. Uh, so be prepared. We're not. Um Policymakers should act more symmetrically. You know, every time a problem emerges, we ease policy, interest rates, and fiscal, and then we never tighten them as much in the upturn as we did in the downturn. So the interest rates ratchet down and the debt levels ratchet up. It's unsustainable, but no, it, it continues. So um, expecting the unexpected, uh, focus on triggers, you know, don't... Uh, Sorry, don't focus on triggers. Focus on the underlying systemic problems. Um, in a complex system, for example, a single indicator like price stability is not going to guarantee overall macro stability. The lessons go on and on from just, you know. And, um, and actually, I guess going back to one of your recent questions, one of the things that this complex stuff teaches you is that everything's interconnected so that no, no man is an island. No, no country should be conducting monetary policy 
on the assumption that what it does pertains only to itself. Now you need you need an international monetary system, not the nun system that we've got. So um, that that that's where I think I would I I would start I would start with the literature and complexity, because that's the literature about reality, as opposed to some of the other stuff, which is about a kind of concocted synthetic reality that the economists have thought up for themselves. Very good. Well, it's fascinating speaking to you. Um, we've had some volatility, I would say, in markets this year. But but speaking to you, I get a sense that maybe we're only starting to see some of the volatility in the markets and in, in the global economy that we may see over the next few years, as we've been saying. Impossible to predict precisely how things are going to play out, but uh, a reasonable forecast is that we will see more challenges and crises ahead. But um, um, thanks very much for coming on. It's been a, an absolute pleasure speaking to you and uh, absolutely fascinating. So it's been a pleasure, Alex. Thank you, very, Alan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alan and Bill, for a very special and insightful conversation that not only covered the past failures of central bank policies, but also the dangers on the current economic direction. I really enjoyed Bill's account of how he believes that central banks were focusing on the wrong dangers, namely deflation, and how the easy money policies were not only unnecessary, but also ineffective and dangerous, risking financial stability through misallocation of resources. I also agree with Bill that central banks bears a large part of the responsibility of where we are today and that all of this could lead to an even bigger crisis than what we saw in 2008 and that what we have just seen playing out in the UK may be the precursor. And of course, his seven points as to why inflationary shocks may persist for much longer is really important to pay attention to as they may possibly lead to a very deep recession. Many of these points we have, of course, discussed in previous episodes. And finally, let me just reiterate Bill's warning that we seem to already have a shortfall between the tax revenues received and the current government liabilities, which essentially means that at some points they can't be honored. But of course, there are so many more gems in this conversation. Make sure you go and follow Bill and Alan's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been sitting in the front row for many years and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode and in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.